Welcome to Pipeline, Profiles in Philosophy and Education. I'm your host, Winston C. Thompson. Pipeline is a monthly short-form interview program focused on contemporary scholars. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, please visit pipeline.fm. Pipeline is made possible by the generous support of the Education Department of the University of New Hampshire. In this episode, we are joined by Barbara Stengel, Vanderbilt University. Barbara Stengel, welcome. Thank you, Winston. I'm happy to be here. We're very glad to have you. So, knowing a little bit about our format here, maybe you can get us started by telling us a little bit about how you came to study philosophy and education. Uh, did one come before the other? Did they arise simultaneously for you? Uh... That's a great question. And like many in our field, I think it was somewhat accidental. Mm. Um, I came to philosophy of education through sports psychology, uh, religious studies, and political science, um, an undergraduate degree, a couple of master's degrees. And then somebody one day said to me, oh, you ought to go talk to Dave Engel, who became my uh, my uh, mentor in philosophy of education. Yes, of course. Because you have similar interests. And I went over and talked to him. And I thought, oh, my goodness, who mm-hmm. knew that this was a possibility? And I ended up doing a joint degree in philosophy and education at the University of Pittsburgh. Okay. And it was just a fabulous place for me to be. Okay. Oh, interesting. So <laughs> at that time, were you thinking of philosophy necessarily, or were you starting to think of philosophical approaches to education and some of the work that you'd been doing? Or What I now understand is that I always had philosophical questions motivating the work that I did. Um, I can think of some projects that I did as an undergraduate mm-hmm. when I was doing um, political science and art history and religious studies, and I was asking individuals. Uh, really philosophical questions. And then I went to a master's program in religious studies. Mm. And that was um, wonderful. I really enjoyed it. But the questions that were of interest to me were philosophical questions, especially ethical questions, questions like how does one become a good human being? And what does it mean to talk about that? And, And then I took an interesting detour because I thought I might actually explore those questions from the standpoint of a college basketball coach. I actually have coached basketball for a long time and at at virtually every level and uh, was a college basketball coach and did a a master's degree in sports psychology. And then I decided that wasn't esoteric enough. I knew somehow that wasn't going to do it for me. And that's when I ended up in this this joint program in philosophy and education. Mm -hmm. And I... In some way, the question that I asked as an undergraduate is still the question I'm asking today, and that is, what is it? What does it mean to be a good human, a good person in the world, and what does that take? And so that's why it's philosophy and education for me. It's not one or the other. Yes, I often find that there are these sort of abiding questions that stick with us over time, just as you've described. Uh, I'm curious, in which ways... Are your abiding questions sort of uh, being addressed now in your work? What sort of things are you working on at the moment? Mm. Right now, for instance, I'm going to give a talk in Great Britain called Educating Capitalists. And in that talk, I'm beginning from the view that we are caught in a place in our world today that is, I'm not going to say it's caused by capitalism, but it is... um, 
linked deeply to the kind of consumer capitalism that we are practicing and that I think we are practicing to our detriment. And um, this is not a, a rant about capitalism. It is a suggestion that capitalism is not even being true to itself, that capitalism is not being enacted in ways that are good for even capitalism, let alone for the welfare of human beings. So I'm making an argument that, um, that our goal as educators in this place and time in history is to educate capitalists in two ways. First, to educate those who do not have the wherewithal, the intellectual wherewithal, the emotional wherewithal, the uh, material wherewithal, to be capitalists. They have no access to the means of production, as Marx mm -hmm. would have said. Right. And here I'm thinking about um, the young people in a middle school I'm working in in Nashville where they're there is no place in the capitalist economy for them. Mm -hmm. And they have to learn how to make a place for themselves mm -hmm. because going to college is not the answer. Mm -hmm. We're not going to educate every young child in Nashville to go to college. So what are we going to do? And how do they, how do they become capitalists in the sense of creating opportunities, economic opportunities for themselves? Mm. Because they're smart enough to invent. They are smart enough to develop ideas and to recognize that there are products that people want and need. Um, and I want them to learn the kinds of things so that they can become capitalists. A second kind of group that I, I have been thinking about are um, women in a, a nonprofit organization in Nashville for women who have been prostitutes, mm -hmm. women who were already capitalists of a certain oh, kind, but they are coming out of prostitution because they understand the dehumanizing aspects mm -hmm. of that work. And they're going into a place called uh, Magdalene House, along with that something called Thistle Farms, where they actually... Actually, they, they can stay for two years, but they're making their own living mm. by creating products out of thistles, um, body care products and, and uh, stationary products and all kinds of things. And this particular program, not a school educational program, sure. but an educational program nonetheless, mm. is teaching them to be capitalists mm. of a different kind sure. than they were as prostitutes. Now, that's on the, on the one hand. On the other hand, I teach at Vanderbilt University, and... Um, these are students at Vanderbilt of privilege. They are students with, with intellectual capacities, with um, social capacities, and there are, there is a place for them in our current consumer economy. And that place is, they are going to graduate from college and get, quote, very good jobs. They are going to be well paid. We have to teach them something else. Mm. We have to teach them what the limits of this capitalist economy they intend to participate are and the ways in which they themselves will be dehumanized by their participation in that economy for their own good, sure. for the quality of their lives, for the quality of their relationships, for yeah. all of those things. So I'm, I right now am, am thinking a lot about this, um, because I think that it's, we're not escaping capitalism. Sure, you know, capitalism's yeah. going to China and it's sure. going to the the rest of the underdeveloped world. So the question then becomes, how do we live with capitalism so we are not capitalism's captive? And I think mm -hmm. educators have a very important role to play in that. Um, 
and it, it that project is actually part of a larger project that I've paid a lot of attention to in the last few years around fear as fear functions in educational experience and also in our educational system. I think sadly that we have an educational system right now that is fueled by fear. Um, accountability, teachers accountability, it's about fear. Kids mm-hmm. taking tests, kids are afraid. They are deathly afraid. And it's not just kids in failing schools now. Mm-hmm. It's all kids who have been subject to a system of accountability that um, puts them on the spot constantly, mm-hmm. that uses standardized testing in ways that are not formative, but consistently judgmental. Mm-hmm. And um, so, and and then we, even our policy, you know, we, we, we motivate all this or justify all this by saying that we're, um, we're losing ground in the world sure, yeah. economically. This is yeah. nonsense. Yeah. It's not true. Yeah. Um, and, but we create this and I think it's been made worse since 9-11. Oh, and yeah. so I look mm. at the ways I have been looking at the ways that, um, our economic system creates the insecurity that leads to fear. I'm looking at the ways our school policies, mm. um, create fear. And then what concerns me is that when people act out of fear, mm. they are not acting in anybody's best interest, including their own. That's the thing that I think we're missing. And so I hope to to continue to pursue that. And the piece on, on capitalism is really, um, really just kind of a piece of that. It's a cultural piece of that. Mm. Well, thank you. Uh, it's, it's really fascinating to think about all the different ways that uh, uh, fear is present in the educational system and the ways oh, yeah. that you're uh, sort of trying to to my ears at least, uh, avoid um, giving a very sort of simple answer to these uh, enduring questions. Well, I hope you're right uh, about that. But you know, there are simple examples, Winston. Um, Math phobia. Sure. 40% of the kids in elementary schools and Mm -hmm. then into middle schools and I think through high school are math phobic. And it's in part because 40% of their teachers are math phobic. I actually did some empirical work on this a number of years ago. And a lot of folks going into elementary education don't like math. They're afraid of math. And they teach math as if they were afraid of it. And so their students... um, As as Sarah Ahmed would say, the, the... that affect, that fear sticks to uh, the yes. objects of the problems, <laughs> sure. the pencils, the calculators. It sticks to that. And the minute you say mathematics, there a large number of kids are quaking in their boots. Sure. There, there are many, many kids who aren't quaking in their boots, mm-hmm. who are good at math, who like math. And I would say that's probably even a majority. But mm-hmm. there are way too many kids and mm-hmm. teachers who are math phobic. Mm-hmm. And... You know, we have to solve that. We have to teach in ways that help kids to understand that um, math is something that can be learned, mm. not just by a very few, mm. and that um, the right ways of teaching it and the right ways of allowing kids to explore mathematics mm. as a language can really be um, very fruitful. So there are a lot of different directions I could go in with all this. And it sounds fa- fantastic. I mean, especially when uh, uh, placed in the context of your earlier experiences, sort of coaching and yes. uh, thinking about yes. the ways in which those experiences uh, uh, may be informing some of the work that you're doing now. It's uh, really, uh, really heartening. Really yeah. One of the interesting things yeah. about this work in fear that goes back to my days in coaching, and any sports fan could associate with this, <laughs> sure. you want a team to be excited 
but not too excited. Sure. You want them to feel, I mean, we talk about um, the edge or we talk about being psyched. Sure. That, we mm-hmm. want that. We want that yeah. level of, of affective excitation. Mm-hmm. But the minute it trips sure. over into fear, sure. uh, you yes. are... Um, I coach basketball. Every shot is a little too long sure. or a little too short. Oh, that's interesting. Um, you're fouling people because you're you're not relaxed and you're yeah. not Did seeing you know, what. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Sure. And the same thing is happening in schools, mm. and in any other in any educational environment where we hold people to this kind of constant judgment as opposed to constant formation. And I think that's, I'm not suggesting there should be no standards. I think standards are useful and they help us to know where we're moving. As Dewey sure. would say, they're an end in view that sure. gives us a, a telos for our, for our um, action. But um, finding that sweet spot, finding that place where we're excited enough to perform, but not so excited that we mm-hmm. cross over. I think, I think we're failing miserably yeah. at that right now. Keep, keep folks psyched yeah, uh, in a yeah, very good way. Yeah. Um, maybe you can uh, <clears throat> tell us a little bit about uh, what you see uh, as sort of uh, on the, the, the horizon, on the, uh, in the future. Uh, in philosophy I, of it? Yeah, in philosophy of it. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, here's the thing, I think. Hmm. Philosophy of Ed will never go out of business as long as we are doing education, and that's not going out of business, as long as we are doing it, there will be people asking prior questions. There will be people analyzing the language that we use. There will be people asking, what does this mean? There will be people um, trying to uncover what we call phenomenologically, trying to get at the core of an experience and say, this is what it is, and this is what we want to do for kids. And there will be people deconstructing the the guiding narratives and sure. saying, yo, wait a minute, that's not the only story that can be told here. Sure. There's a counter narrative I can tell. And that's philosophy of education. And so somebody's going to be doing it. Now that's a different question from will they be prepared to do it well? Mm. Um, and that's the question about the institutional life of philosophy of education. Sure. And I confess to be, to being a little worried. That, and this is linked to the, the state of higher education generally, that as people retire from positions in, in philosophy of education, they are not being replaced. Um, that we have only a handful now of really strong programs in the country that are developing folks to do philosophy of education well. And by well, I mean carefully and in a disciplined way. And I I don't just mean, you know, do it the way they say it in a textbook. I I mean that I, uh, I recognize my own assumptions and I ask questions about those and I interrogate my own ideas and the ideas of other and that I'm precise with my language and that I clarify it and that I speak in a way that the person with whom I am speaking can understand it, not just in a way that makes sense to me. And that's the discipline of philosophy. Um, it's a practice. And there are people um, like those who belong to the Philosophy of Education Society and others who, who have come to that discipline together and are trying to ensure they have some standards for what what this work is that we do, this practice is that we do together. So I'm, I'm worried um, about how we maintain a certain integrity for the discipline while staying open to 
new new ideas, new possibilities, new perspectives. I think to date we've done a pretty good job, but there there is an economic element to all of this that's linked to the future of higher ed. So I, philosophy of ed, somebody's going to be doing it all the time. Will they be doing it well? I don't know. Mm. I don't know. Hmm. Well, Barbara Stengel, thank you for a, a really illuminating conversation. You're very welcome. For more information and to review previous episodes, please visit www.pipeline.fm.